So we're going to be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and uh, Ben, who's going to be preaching today, Ben Steele, asked Jared for a scripture reader. And Jared sent me an email going, Peter, as I read this chapter, I felt like you should read it. I don't know if it's because it makes mention of a king or makes mention of fools, makes mention of vanity. I'm not sure. But our reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screens as I read. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh, and had many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the one, who, uh, what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same fate befalls all of them. Then I said to myself, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. For there is no enduring remembrance of the wise or of fools. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How can the wise die just like fools? So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. 
because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. The word of the Lord. Amen. Coming back from the uh, cry room, I kind of feel like I'm a pitcher coming out of the bullpen a little bit, you know, getting fired up, bringing in the lefty. Um, I also kind of find it funny that sometimes after a passage like that, you know, we continue to say the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You know, it's thanks be to God for that. That doesn't seem something we should be all that thankful for. Um, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Julie start our, ser- our sermon series off on the book of Ecclesiastes, and she gave a, a really uh, meaningless sermon. I mean, sorry, a sermon about meaninglessness. Um, yeah, a little slip there. Um, but about how, how life you can experience um, different forms of meaninglessness. So we're continuing on, and if you were hoping that after last week's kind of Debbie Downer sermon that, that my, uh, my mother, Pastor Julie, gave, you were hoping for something a little bit uh, uh, better, well, listening to the text, I'm sure you can understand, we're not going to get a whole lot more chipper in here today, all right? He's, <laughs> the, he, he's got a few more grievances to, to air before, before we start turning things around here. Um, so our author and, and self-proclaimed self-experimenter is still chasing after the wind, He's stuck in this experience of life that we could call insubstantial, uh, vaporous might be a way to say it, or, or, um, or one person put it this way, it was incongruous, meaning I'm putting in certain kinds of effort towards life, and I'm not being met with the same amount of reward. The amount of effort I'm putting in isn't being translated into the results. And until we come face to face with that, with the fact that life can be like that, we genuinely can't begin to understand the wisdom that this author from this ancient book has for us. If we're content filling our lives with spiritual and intellectual cotton candy, we're going to miss out what he has to say. Until we come to grips with the fact that life can be full of dissatisfaction, we cannot walk and learn from the teacher. And, and you'll realize this is, this is pretty tricky, particularly for us in this context, because if there was a time in history where we, could, we, we have a smorgasbord of entertainment at our fingertips, it's right now. Think about, think about your daily life. Yes, there are cracks in society, and, and yes, we can see on the news cycles and through friends that, that life is not by any means perfect, but the amount of things that we have at our disposal to put those cracks, to put those problems aside, are numerous. How many of you have a smartphone in here? Right? That's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week entertainment device. 
You got, you got 22 extra minutes on your hand between what you're supposed to be doing? Great, stream a Netflix show. I got to go to the bathroom? Okay, I can text somebody or, or, or tweet, right? <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not sleeping, eating, or working, you can be entertained. And sometimes you can still be entertained while you're, you're working, right? But part of this, I think, has to do with the realization that not many of us want to come to the conclusion that the teacher has come to, that life can feel meaningless. We'd rather avoid that question altogether. But think about it in your own life. Think about, imagine, sitting alone by yourself, no phone, no internet, no Pokemon Go, no Seattle Mariners or, or Seahawks to look forward to, no new cool gadgets, no, no shopping sprees, no, no latest books or magazines to read through, sitting by yourself. What do you imagine you would experience? What do you imagine you would experience if you stripped away all the things that kind of can distract us or take our attention for a day? What kinds of thoughts would run through your mind? What would you experience? I don't think it's a coincidence that on the one hand, we have more options and opportunities for entertainment than ever before, and at the same time as a society, I would argue that we are suffering from boredom more than ever. I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, uh, I'm a brand new father, so obviously I have to weave my, my daughter into this sermon, okay? And I'm actually kind of surprised that Grandma, Pastor Julie, didn't do that last week. So, um, But actually, we have, a, we have a picture of my daughter Mary. There she is. That sweet little Mary. Yeah, that gives me brownie points right there, right? You all are on my side now. I'm a brand new, new father. And one of the things that I'm learning about uh, being a dad is that Infants, they go through these stages called wonder weeks. That's what, I don't know, psycho, baby psychologists or whatnot have, have called them. And they're, they're short spans, five to ten days, where a, a baby will kind of gain new skills and abilities rapidly. So uh, right now she's kind of in a phase where she's starting to grab things. Um, she's been able to control her head more. A few weeks ago, though, she was in a phase that had to do with the development of her eyes. When babies are first born, they can only see about 18 inches in front of them. And they, they see in black and white mostly. So three or four weeks ago, Mary started to develop the ability to see at greater distance. Imagine your entire world is the 18 inches in front of your face. And all of a sudden, it begins to become 5, 6, 10, 12 feet. How crazy would that be? Imagine if your entire life was in black and white, and all of a sudden you began to see shades of color. Imagine if everything that you saw seemed just kind of like a jumbled pile of mess. And then all of a sudden, you begin to recognize that that mess has patterns. That was what she was going through a few weeks ago, recognizing that there are patterns in existence in life. Now, maybe that's too hard for you to, to, to imagine, so I actually have another picture that we can, that we can see. How many of us have seen, seen something like this before? This is what's, what's known as uh, a magic eye or a 3D image. It's one of those things maybe you've seen in the mall or in art stores or galleries or whatnot. And it really looks like just a jumbled pile of pixels, right? No real order to it, just some, some, some colors and they're kind of randomized. But the idea is that if you look at it long enough and people have different strategies, they say maybe you have to look through it or some people say just kind of look at it but then relax your eyes and unfocus. I don't know what that means. But uh, you're supposed to be able to look at it and then eventually a picture 
a ship, a plane, whatever, is kind of revealed in the 3D image. Now, some of you guys are looking really hard at it, trying to see what the image is. Um, I don't know what it is because I'm terrible at these things, and I looked at it for a while. I was like, I got to get off of this. I, I can't, I don't know. So there might not even be an image in there, but I'm, I'm told that there is. <laughs> the, the point is, though, that if we start to look at life, we anticipate patterns. We anticipate rhythms and habits. And in fact, Pastor Peter, uh, next week, he's going to be going into chapter 3. And that's the famous chapter about times and seasons and rhythms for life. We, we naturally anticipate that life has these patterns to it. And it's not just from our own experience, but, our good, but theology also tells us this as well. Good, th- good theology is always backed up by our experience. So we think about the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John goes on to say that, that through that Word, everything in the cosmos, in the world, came into existence. Now the, the word that John uses there, the Greek word, is actually the word logos, which is where we get the word logic from. John was intentionally playing on some Greek philosophers who were talking about that the cosmos had a kind of reasonable, rational, rational principle that began to order the universe. John gave that, that principle a name, a person, Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that the world gains order and is reordered through his death and resurrection. So we see that the world has order. You want to go back even further to the beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the word, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ, all was created. And there's a rhythm. The writer says, God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the, the second day. God spoke, and it was so, that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day, so on and so forth. There are rhythms and patterns and habits that are built into the fabric and of reality. This is backed up by science as well. Think about the fact that you're all here based upon the assumption that gravity is going to be a constant in your life. You got up, you got out of bed, you didn't think for a second that you might fly out of the bed and hit the ceiling. You didn't think for a second that gravity was going to stop. You knew that when, you're, when you put your feet down, they were going to hit the floor. I'll bet anybody here, if they want to go against gravity, that if I drop this pen 100 times out of 100, it's going to hit the ground. Does anyone want to take that bet that it's not going to do that? Gravity is a constant. We have faith in it, and by that faith, we live our life. Every step we take, we don't tremble and worry. Is it going to, okay, it's there. Is it, it, right? We assume it's a constant. In mathematics, from time and into eternity, 2 plus 2 is going to equal 4. So we are both trained through our education and we have instinctive qualities to, be, to look for patterns in life. To seek and to find the way that life is. But what our writer here brings up this morning is what happens when it feels like the math doesn't add up? Some of you who are good at math got that. Some of you are still trying to figure that one out. 
What happens when the math doesn't add up? What happens when life as you expect it doesn't have the congruity that we've come to expect? That we've been guaranteed that there are certain patterns and habits and rituals or uh, uh, seasons to life and that they're not coming through? What happens when it feels like two plus two is not equaling four? I can remember a, a time in my life where it felt like two plus two was not equaling four. It was a, a long season of moments where my life and the lives of others around me felt very incongruous. I was a chaplain at Harborview right here in Seattle for a summer as part of my seminary training. And so day after day and week after week, I sat with, with people and families and friends, loved ones, of people whose lives have been turned upside down, whose lives in those moments didn't feel very congruous, where it felt like I was doing everything I was supposed to, and yet why am I ending up in a hospital bed here? Sat with a woman who had a diagnosis of cancer and never smoked a day in her life. Sat with a woman and her family. As she was driving home, a drunk driver crossed the median and hit her, and yet she sustained the injuries and the drunk driver didn't. Doesn't seem very congruous to me. Remember an elderly gentleman who came to the rescue of a woman who was being a, abused by, in a domestic violence situation, and he ended up in the hospital, beaten up. doesn't feel at that moment that the effort you're putting into life is reaping the rewards you're supposed to get. And so we would wrestle with these incongruities of life. We would wrestle how the amount of effort that they were putting in or the, the things that they were doing weren't paying off. The return on investment wasn't all that great. They felt like life and society had made them some certain promises, and those promises weren't being kept. I can remember for myself a time where life felt very incongruous. Vanity of vanities, as the writer says. At the end of 2008, I was a missionary in West Africa, and I had a string of events that made it feel like the amount of effort that I was putting in wasn't reaping very much reward. It started out in early December, driving to a, a Christmas school giveaway where my truck broke down in the middle of nowhere. I got stranded and slept on the street, contracted malaria. A few weeks later, later that same truck, now repaired, supposedly, I was using, uh, malfunctioned and ended up causing me to help run over a, a, a young boy, causing him great pain. He survived, but with many broken bones. And then just a few weeks after that, coming home from the American embassy, watching some football, I was tracked down and chased down by some bandits on a motorcycle. Chased down, they forced me in, uh, to go off the road and crash into a tree, wrecked my bike, Got injured, lost a shoe. Actually, I got the shoe back, but it flew off in the crash. Had to run for my life. And after that point, I had some very frank and honest conversations with God about how it didn't feel like what I was putting in the effort was, was reaping much reward. Felt like I was getting less than zero back. Here I am thinking to myself, I'm a young guy in my 20s. I'm giving up an opportunity to stay here in, here in America, the comforts of my home, 
leaving my friends, my family, leaving air conditioning, clean water, hot water. And all for you, God. I'm doing this for you. The least you could do is protect me. The least you could do is protect me from this. The amount of effort I'm putting in doesn't feel like it's getting much back. It felt like everything I was doing was chasing after the wind, grasping at vapor. Nothing that was substantial was happening. So in these seasons and and, and times in life where life feels insubstantial, what are we to do? The teacher, with great access to disposable income, begins pursuing pleasure, the finest things of life, the best foods, the best wines, planting trees and vineyards, commanding power over other people and slaves, having singers and concubines at his disposal, setting no no, or setting all restraints and, and constraints aside, only pursuing what his heart desired, leaving no stone unturned. Whatever looked good, he was going to try it. As a genuine pursuit to see, can this give me lasting meaning? Can this pursuit, if I do it enough, if I do it in great amounts enough, if I do it in the right combination, can all these things somehow satisfy? Can all these things give me some kind of permanent meaning? But he ends up saying that this too proved meaningless. And after reviewing all the works and the the progress that he had made, he ends up actually hating his work, saying that all the effort that he's put in is actually going to be reaped the benefits of by somebody else, perhaps a fool or a sinner. He's not even going to get to enjoy all the effort he's put in. How fair is that? So he hates his life and his work. At that point, what are we to do? Kind of throw our hands up, resign to some kind of nihilistic worldview that really there is no meaning in the world, and give up? You know, our theme for this summer in Ecclesiastes is nothing new under the sun. And in fact, there could be nothing more true than that. To kind of look at this scripture in a different way, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. If you have your Bible, you can go to chapter 3. The scripture will be up on the screens in a moment. But I want to give you the context here. Genesis chapter 3. God has made the man and the woman. He's put them in this garden of Eden, this this garden of paradise for them to enjoy. And beyond enjoying it, God says you're to do a couple of things. One is to guard it, to protect it, to keep it. And there's one tree. There's one tree in the garden that you're not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, last week in Pastor Julie's sermon, a theme that came up was her disgust for limits, her repulsion to feeling like she's being constrained by some kind of limitation. And when we read here in Genesis 3 that there's this limit in the garden, this tree right here that they can't eat from, may raise a few questions. I know for many years, I would, I would wonder, God, if you knew that we weren't supposed to eat from that tree, and you knew we were going to eat from that tree, why is there the tree? 
You're smarter than that. Why, why give us the opportunity to screw up at all? Is it because you just want to condemn us or something? I mean, you just want to make this good creation and then throw it all away? That doesn't make much sense. But at the time, I, I realized, at a time I realized that God, the giver of good gifts, gives limitations as a gift as well. That limitation is a gift. The tree, in fact, was designed to give the man and the woman an opportunity for the first experience of worship. What I mean by that is, when you think about worship, when you think about what at the heart of worship is, worship always comes down to God is God and I am not. You can add guitars, drums, cymbals, organs, anything you want to. You can add nothing. At the end of the day, worship is about saying, God is God and I am not. And putting that tree in the garden was God's way of gifting to the man and the woman an opportunity for them to say, God is God and I am not. There is something in here that is not for me, and that's okay because I'm not God. By giving the humans restraint and limits, it gives us an ability to acknowledge who the true creator is and to allow us to be humble. So we'll see here what the, what the humans actually do with, uh, with this restraint. Here in Genesis 3, verses three, uh, 4 through 7, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's the, what's the promise that the serpent made to Eve. That, that through this finite object, this piece of fruit, you could have access to the infinite, the eternal. The lie worked and the temptation drew them in. Why? Because ultimately we as humans have a desire, a legitimate desire for the infinite, for the eternal. And yet we are ourselves finite, limited beings. It's this real conundrum we've been put in. And time and time again, through scripture and in life, we see that people with deep desires for the infinite and for the lasting, for the significant, but they pursue those desires through means and methods that were designed initially to be finite and limited. The teacher in Ecclesiastes pursues pleasure, pursues work, pursues wisdom, ultimately things that are finite and limited, in hopes that they will somehow fulfill this desire and ex- for experience with the infinite. It's not that eating fruit is necessarily bad or enjoying good wine or work or friends, are bad, but they become vanity of vanities. They become meaningless. 
They become illegitimate when we try to substitute finite things, food, wine, sex, work, entertainment, whatever, for the infinite. When we substitute them for a relationship with God. Ultimately, the serpent said that the fruit could, excuse me, ultimately the serpent said that the fruit would promise something that it could not deliver. The finite thing cannot bring about eternal significance. Wine, gardens, wealth, singers, harems, they're all pursued by the teacher here in great numbers and and quantities because the teacher was pursuing a fulfillment of of quality with quantity. What does Scripture show us from the beginning of generation to the end of Revelation? That the author and source of life is God himself. And it is only through that life with God, through Jesus Christ, that that fulfillment of eternal and infinite desires can be met. So food, friends, pleasure, work, love, they're all good things. The teacher comes to that acknowledgement at the end of the chapter, recognizing it is good for us to enjoy our work, to enjoy good food and wine. But they're poor substitutes for a life with God. Perhaps the key to life is not just good things in excess like the teacher was trying to strive for. Perhaps the key to life can best be summed up like this. Man's got to know his limitations. We've got to know our limitations. We've got to know the limitations of the things we're interacting with. If we think that our job, our career, our life in the work world is somehow going to fulfill something that is only only designed for God to fulfill, we're going to fail. And as we see, the teacher does come back back around at the end of the chapter, recognizing that work is good, and drink and food are good too. They are gifts from God, intended to be enjoyed in their proper perspective. They are limited goods, but goods nonetheless, but they are not the ultimate good. No matter what your work is, it will fade, it will get old, it will get replaced, it will break down, it will be forgotten. Don't assume that your finite hands can make something that is everlasting. So enjoy your work for what it is, a gift from God. Enjoy friends and food, enjoy beauty But don't try to have those finite things replace a relationship with the infinite. We all have longings in our heart, deep desires for worth and fulfillment. Choose wisely what it is you will try to fulfill those longings with. Amen.